and some crayons um, fresh from Cracker Barrel. I don't know where we got those, but we have them. So there they are if you need those. I did not go and raid Cracker Barrel last night. That wasn't what happened, but we have them, and so you can use those. But this morning, so we're talking about something really important. Okay, I'm going to use a big word. I'm going to teach you a big word today. You ready for it? Two big words, actually. The first one is soteriology. All right, say it back to me. Soteriology. All right, now you want me to tell you what it means? It's really simple. It is just, all it means is the study of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? That's a lot simpler, right? We should use that word. But the first part of soteriology is something we're going to talk about today is justification. Another big word. Say that one back to me. Oh, come on. Justification. Say it louder. Justification. Good. Okay. Who knows what justification means? Anybody? What if I say justified? Do you know what the word justified means? Okay, still not there. What about justice? You ever heard the word justice? Okay, we're getting, we're getting closer. Anybody think you have an idea what justice means? Guess, give me a guess. You're, you're close, I can see it in your eyes. You got, give me that crooked look. You have glasses, you have to be smart. That's how it works, right? What do you think it is? I don't know if I should ask you. Okay, so justice, let's, let's say this. So here, here, I'll make it really simple. Justice is, if I'm driving down 41 and I go 150 miles an hour and the police officer stops me, he's going to give me what? A, a ticket. Because I, did I deserve that ticket? Yes. If I, and Lily's like, no, go faster. No, that's, that's, I hope you never drive. No, that's not okay. Justice is getting what you deserve for something wrong, right? So justice would say if you if you cheat on a test, justice means what? Uh, you have to redo it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, if your teacher's nice, you redo it, or otherwise you get a zero and go to the office and jail, jail time, right? So never cheat on a test. No, not really. No jail time. But justice means getting what you deserve for something you did wrong, right? So justification must mean we all get what we deserve and we're all going to hell. That's the end of the story. All right, guys, enjoy. Is that good? No, you don't like that. You're, you're not moving. You don't like that. That's not the way it goes. You don't think so? Well, justification means to be made just. Okay, so justice means you paid for what you deserve or you got what you deserve. Justification means it's as if you already paid what you deserve. Okay, so for example, let's use that same example. And let's say that you got caught cheating on the test and your teacher said, well, listen, somebody came and they took your punishment. They took your zero. And instead of a zero, they asked me to give you a ring pop. Mystery pop. Uh oh, I think you all want the mystery pop. Let me see if I got four of them. I may not. You have to trade or fight over them, one or the other. I don't know. There's a great one. All right, mystery. There we go. So, would it be, okay, so you just cheated on a test and you got a ring pop. Is that justice? No. no, but it is justification. You were justified, and who justified you was Jesus. So as you eat that ring pop today, and as you study your little paper, I want you to think about this. Your sin, what does the Bible say? Remember we talked about it in VBS, that the wages of sin is? Death. So you deserve? Death. If we sinned, did we all sin? But the gift of God is what? Through who? Jesus. So justification is you sinned and you deserve to die. 
But instead, Jesus took your sin, and he took your death, and he gave you a ring pop. No, he gave you eternal life. But your ring pop is to remind you that Jesus gave you a gift instead of a punishment. All right, you guys can go sit with your parents. Find your seat. Take some crayons and a paper. Good, good. All right. So that's our thought today. I really could close with that, but I want to spend the next few weeks on what I talked about with the kids, and that's soteriology. And it's, it's just a big word that means what is the doctrine? What does it mean to be saved? What happened at the moment of salvation? When you accepted Christ as your Savior, what did He do in you? And so we're starting this topic, uh, this, this series called Relationship Status. And so you may recognize I ripped off a very popular site that some of you may spend some time on. And I thought this would be our theme. It's Facebook, sorry. That's, that's our relationship status. Um, and and on, on Facebook, there used to be this term for a dating couple that was your Facebook official, right? So that meant, like, it wasn't just, you weren't just talking to somebody anymore. You weren't just friends. Now that you put on Facebook that we're in a relationship, it's serious. Like, that's, that's the last straw. Now you're official. And so there's still, like... Young kids, and they, they don't use Facebook anymore, they're on Snapchat and on Instagram, but there's still this level of permanence that says, my status is I'm in a relationship. Well, I want us to talk for the next few weeks about our relationship status with Christ. What is our relationship with Christ and how does that look? And so I want us to examine what our personal relationship looks like with our Savior. So I want us all to be reflecting and some of you say, well, well I've, I've been a Christian for a long time. I already know this. Let me tell you something. If you're really a believer, looking at the cross is not boring. It's a reminder of everything that he's done. And so we're going to spend a few weeks looking at the cross and let it be an encouragement and a reminder to you of all that Christ has done for us. And so today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. And we're talking about this thought, justification. What does it mean to be justified by Christ. And so we're going to jump in Colossians 2. And the question we're going to try to answer today is this. Do I have to meet certain human qualifications to truly be a Christian? All right. Do I have to measure up to somebody's standard or somebody's list of rules or somebody's litmus test or somebody's checklist? Do I have to fill in all these blanks? Do I have to be at church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every time the doors are open? Do I have to be at Sunday school every week? Do I have to fill all of these duties to be a Christian? And so that's what we're going to endeavor to answer today. We're going to jump in in Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to jump in at verse number 8. We're going to read down through verse number 17. <laughs> it should be up, on, up here on the screen in just a moment. So Colossians chapter 2. Verse 8, the Bible says this, See to it that no one takes you captive. I want you to underline those three words. Takes you captive. And as you think about those three words, takes you captive, I want you to be thinking about this is what religion does. Religion endeavors to take you captive. And we'll support that through the passage as we go on. So verse 8, he goes on, That no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. I want you to, to, to look at those three words, underline those three words, according to Christ. And here's the paradigm. We, I will regularly tell people that I am not a religious person, which is they always argue with me and say, you're a pastor. How can you be a pastor and not be a religious person? 
I am a person of faith. I'm a person that's been changed by Christ. I am a Christian, not in name of religion, but because everything that I do or should be doing is aimed and focused at Jesus Christ. And our church, as we, as we see our church, I want you to think about this. If we're just a religious organization, all we're doing is taking you captive. And that's not our endeavor. That's not our desire. That's not what we're trying to do. Rather than take you captive, our goal is that you be changed through Jesus Christ. All right, let's go on further. He says in verse number 9, he says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him, through the faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much for all the things that you've done in our lives, God. Thank you so much for this church and this body of believers. And Lord, thank you that we're not just a religious organization, but rather a living organism, a body, Lord following you and doing what you've called us to do. God, I pray that you just help your word to be clear this morning. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is where folks get wrapped up. There was a really popular video circulating over the past couple years where um, it was a spoken word type thing where the guy got up and he talked about how um, the church is wicked and God is good. And I almost agree with everything he said if he would have said religion is wicked and God is good. Because I want you to understand that the church is still God's chosen organism, still God's chosen vehicle to carry out what He's called us to do. But when the church starts to be out of line is when we start to make rules and ordinances and things that are distracting from God and pointing you in a direction to follow men. And so our church, I want us to always endeavor to be pointing back to Christ. And as we look this morning, I hope that you'll see that, that everything we do at First Baptist, whether it's, it's activities or children's, uh, children's ministries or Sunday morning service, everything we do was with the intent and the focus to bring you closer to Christ and to bring others closer to Christ and to worship Christ Himself. Because if we're doing anything outside of those three core beliefs, all we're doing is taking you captive. We want everything to focus on Christ. And so here we talk here in verse number, uh, verse number 8. He jumps in, and I want you to understand the first thing we're going to look at is this. Religion would have you captive. Religion would have you captive. Or in other words, if you follow the traditions of men and the desires of other people, all it's going to do is to cause you to be enslaved to whatever somebody else's opinion is. If you notice something about humans, no matter how strict or how conservative or how many rules you follow, there's always somebody who follows more rules, right? 
There's always somebody more conservative. Or no matter how godly you try to live, there's always somebody that says the standard's just a little bit higher and you're just not good enough. And the truth of the matter is this, no matter how many good things we did and no matter how hard we tried to live a pure life, we will all fall miserably short of the glory of God outside of Jesus Christ. And so as we endeavor to to judge each other and to, to try to call each other into criticism, we end up forgetting that all of us are inferior, that all of us are broken, that all of us are in desperate need of Jesus Christ, and without Him, we're all in the same boat. We're all failures. We're all broken. We're all needy. And so religion would have you captive. Religion plays off of that idea that I know I'm broken. And so that brokenness, they know that you know you're broken, so they're going to play off that brokenness and try to get you to give more, or do more, or, or be here more, or, or fill some blank or some box that will fill somebody else's need. You say, okay, well that sounds like a lot of stuff we do at church. Don't get ahead of me. We're going to talk about how this all fits together. But if you're doing actions, giving uh, things, giving money, spending all your time trying to earn your salvation, all you're doing is being held captive. Because I'm going to, I'll be the first to tell you, no matter how much you tithe, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're not going to heaven. Uh, Kay, I, we didn't even talk about what song Kay was going to sing this morning, but she could not have sung a more perfect song. Because it doesn't matter if you're a member of this church or a member of some other church. It doesn't matter if you teach Sunday school. It doesn't matter if you are here 365 days a year volunteering your time and your efforts. If you do not have a relationship with Christ, you're still destitute and you're still headed to hell. Period. End of discussion. There is no middle ground. That is it. And so here, uh, the, the idea here is that religion would continue to keep you captive. <laughs> it says a few ways that people would try to keep you captive. And the first is this, is by imposing rules. Let's look at verse number 16 here. I think this is really interesting how, um, how Paul looks at this. In verse 16 he says this, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now here's the thing. There are a lot of people that say, well, you're not supposed to judge me. Typically, that's something someone says when they're doing something they know is wicked and wrong, and they don't want you to say anything to them about doing anything wicked or wrong. And the funny thing is they quote a verse that has nothing to do with that. It says, judge not, lest you also be judged. Or in other words, whatever standard you hold others to, you have to be held to that same standard, which usually applies because usually the thing that they're judging the other person about is not the same sin that they're facing. But this passage actually says, let no man be your judge. And this verse actually fits their needs a little bit better, but still doesn't say that nobody is, to, is supposed to come alongside you and encourage you to grow. But what it is saying is that nobody should ever tell you that you're not a Christian because you did this. Or you're not a Christian because you said this. Or you could never have a relationship with Christ because you went here. Or because you do that. Or because you're a part of this. Here's the reality. The only judge that is a rightful judge for your spiritual needs is Jesus Christ, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Those three are your only judge. And so he says, let no man be your judge. And he says a couple things here, and I think it's interesting. The first one he says is about what we consume. He says about what you eat or what you drink. Now, now nowadays, 
This is less of a big concern. There, there are still some things that people try to judge each other about. But in those days, it was like if you ate the wrong meat, if you ate shrimp, if you ate um, the meat that was not prepared the right way, if you ate um, certain different grains, if they were mixed in the wrong way, any of your food, if it was prepared in the wrong way, according to Jewish custom and Jewish law, that made you unholy or unclean. Now here's what Paul's saying, and this was very impactful in that moment. He was saying, no longer are you supposed to meet these standards. The new standard for who you are as a believer is do you follow Christ? Are you a a believer in Christ? Do you have a relationship with Christ? And so the first thing he says here is your, your, your physical needs. Now I'm going to tell you something. There are some things that you can eat that you shouldn't continually eat. I am a model of these things you should not eat, that you cannot continually eat. Now, just because I ate a lot of McDonald's does not mean that I'm going to hell. It just means I'm not in good shape, right? There's still, there's still benefits and, and, and negatives to what you eat and what you consume, what you put in your body. Nowadays, I would even focus more, as far as the consumer side of thing goes, what you buy and what you watch and what you listen to. There are important ways that we should consider what we are consuming whether it's good for us spiritually, whether it's good for us physically, whether it's good for us mentally, but let me be very clear. Never will you come to this church and I will blast some movie or some music or something or some food or some substance because here's what the Bible says. You are not judged by what you consume, but rather because of Jesus Christ. So the first thing he says is that some people will try to keep you captive because of what you consume, the things that you do, what you do in a physical basis. Now, it's funny because Paul later says these things are going to pass. Or in other words, what he was saying in very clear terms in those days is you eat it, it passes through you, and it's gone. Why would that be something that, mod- that makes you unclean or makes you wicked? He goes on further, he says, or your new moons or your Sabbaths or your feasts. And these were religious performance. So the first thing, it's not, don't let somebody impose rules about what we consume. The second thing is about our religious performance. All right. So we don't have new moons or Sabbaths or feasts anymore. I guess you could call our fifth Sunday potluck. That's kind of a feast, I guess. But, um, but there's no religious tie to that anymore. In those days, there were meals and holidays that they celebrated in remembrance of things that Christ had done. For example, Passover was a remembrance of when Christ caused the angel of death to pass over the homes of the believers, the homes of the Jews, the ones that were true followers of God. So they had a meal and they had a celebration to commemorate that so that that teaching would carry on. I think it's important what Paul says is that these things were all a shadow of what is to come and Jesus was the substance of those things. And so he says here, he says that these things that you are being judged by We're all just supposed to point you to Jesus Christ. We didn't want you to be unclean because Jesus, we wanted you to understand the principle that He is pure and righteous and unblemished. And that unblemished lamb can come and pay for the sins of the world. We didn't want you, uh, we wanted you to celebrate these new new moons and these feasts and these different different, um, holidays that we did because we wanted you to remember that God has provided for you. But the last providence, the most important providence, the ultimate providence that God provided for us was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 
And so what he's saying here is when Jesus came, he didn't cancel all of that, but what he did was he completed all of that. The need for signs, the need for miracles, the need for all of these things that passed away when Jesus came was wiped away because we have the Messiah. He has come. He has forgiven our sins. He has changed who we are. (coughs) And so the key is this. If you're continuing to look at the the shadows, if you're continuing to put your faith in sacrifices or in feasts or in new moons, here's what he was saying. If you're putting your focus on religious performance, you've missed the boat. Because when Christ came, religious performance isn't the key anymore. When Christ came, doing rituals and having feasts and, and sacrificing, those weren't the key anymore because what He did ended the need of any more sacrifice. Ended the need for any more work. His work was the final work that needed to be done to forgive sins and to give us salvation. And so here He says that they'd impose rules about what we consume, about our religious performance. And we need to understand that these rules and rituals, like I said, were a picture of Christ to come. <clears throat> Number, uh, letter, D, uh, letter B here. The second way that people will try to enslave you or hold you captive is this, by emphasizing human traditions. Verse 8, here's what he says. He says, let no man take you captive... In verse number 8, he says, uh, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Listen to this. According to the tradition of men. I want you to see, he said, through philosophy and empty deception. Or in other words, if somebody says to you, there is some spiritual value to this man-made ritual, what they're doing is using empty deception and philosophy to try to coerce you into doing something outside of what Christ says. Let me be very clear. Salvation is dependent on one thing. And that one thing is that Jesus Christ died on the cross and forgave your sins. If you accept that free gift of salvation and commit to Christ as a follower of Him, there is nothing left that's needed for salvation. You, there are some churches that you go, and I want to be very clear, I've mentioned, I mentioned church membership a couple times in the last few weeks. Church membership is just, at, at, at very best, it is a way for us to keep structure within how we do things at the church. There is no spiritual or biblical requirement for you to be a church member to be spiritually growing, to be spiritually viable, to be saved and headed to heaven. We want you to become a member because it allows us to help you in your growth towards Christ. That's it. Simple as that. I will never tell you that there is some religious or spiritual reason why you should become a member. Now, baptism, there's a biblical precedent for baptism. If you've never been baptized, the Bible talks about baptism, and it's a physical sign for what's happened inside of you. But as far as church membership, if you've accepted Christ and you just want to come here and and be a church attender your whole life, I'm happy with that. Do it. I'm glad that you're doing that. Because church membership does not make you a better believer. does not make you a better Christian. It's just something that we, in the modern age, have instituted to help us stay organized and to help us have a framework for what we do. It's as simple as that. There's no spiritual or religious reason behind it. If we, uh, if any church, ourselves included, starts to put more stipulations on what you need to grow in Christ and what you need to be a follower of Christ. We start to say, well, if you're not giving, you're not really a follower. Or if you're not um, (coughs) serving, you're not really a follower. 
we never want to attach some physical activity to your relationship with Christ. Now, here's why I say all that. I will still encourage you to give and encourage you to join and encourage you to grow and encourage you to serve. Not because I am saying you have to do these things to be a believer. What I'm saying is as a believer, we are giving you opportunities to serve God in a bigger and better capacity. Is that that clear? I hope that that's not too confusing because I think sometimes, for so long, a lot of churches have put that cart way out ahead of the horse and said, well, we want you serving and when you serve, you're going to be a true follower. Wrong. Well, we want you giving because when you give, then you're a real follower. Wrong. We want you to be a part of what we're doing because when you're a part of what we're doing, then you're a real follower. Wrong. If you are a follower of Christ, He will compel you to serve Him. That's what we want to do is give you an opportunity to do what Christ is compelling you to do. That's church membership. That's that's what we do as a church body. That's why we encourage you to keep growing and doing and, 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 and be a part of what God's doing here at our church. And so it's not about some list of rules that you fall under. This human tradition, you know, it's so funny. As humans, we're so averse to change, right? We have such a hard time with change. Whether it is the color of the carpet or even a website. How many of you notice if, if a website changes and they move like a button and you're just ticked off? Like, you move that button. Where in the world is the button that I push? I just came here to pay a bill. Now i got to search through the whole page. I'm not even paying. I'm going to send a check. How many of you have done that? I've done that. I've been there. Just call them mad. Who moved your button? Like the lady on the phone has any idea. <laughs> Sir, what button are you talking about? I didn't move it. But the point is we can't stand change. Now here's the thing. Is it usually because the change is bad? No. Is it usually because the old way was better? Not really. It was because we were comfortable with way, the way that things were. We were comfortable with the way that things had been. And this change represents an uncomfortability about what we want to be doing. Now let me tell you something. This is not me. This is not my rule because I'm human too. I don't like change much either. But I have very rarely been used by God in a situation where he first didn't make me really uncomfortable. Where he didn't first choose to put me in a situation that I was really uncomfortable. Let me tell you why I think he does this. Because if not, we get so tied to human traditions. We think that our way was the answer. Okay, so I'll give, you, I'll give you a personal example. This one hits home. I came here as a youth pastor almost two years ago. And I had been a youth pastor for 10 years. And when I came here, I came not pridefully, but with confidence that all the things that I had ever done before in youth ministry were going to continue to work. And, and, and I'm, I'm not bragging about things, but God had used things that we did in other churches to see groups double and quadruple in size just because we did some events and did some different things. And I said, well, we're going to get to this church and we're going to do those same things and God's going to quadruple it and then that's it. That's how it works. That's what we're going to do. And so at, at one year, I can remember having a conversation with Carrie and Carrie walks in and she's like, yeah, there's still like four kids here. That's, that's good. Like she was, she's super um, positive. So Carrie's always like, yeah, there's four kids here. This is awesome. These are great four kids. I love these four kids. I'm like, I do too. And she, I guess she could just pick up on that. I was kind of like, man, we have been doing so much stuff and it's just still four kids. I love these four kids and I care about these four kids, 
But God, where are these other kids coming from? I want to reach more kids. I want to reach more teenagers. How can we reach more? And it occurred to me in that moment, God didn't didn't, audibly speak to me, but in that moment, God convicted me that I had been doing everything my way. It had been the church of John, the youth group of John, that's going to do everything that worked before, continue to do the things that worked before. And I just had to humble myself and say, all right, God, open the doors, whatever, whatever you want me to do. I know nothing. You figure it out. I'll do what you tell me to do. A week later, I started coaching the YMCA, got involved with the YMCA. And I'll tell you now, this last Sunday, what do we have, 16 or 18 kids? It is 0% of my experience that brought any of those kids into that youth group. Because never before have I run a youth group at a picnic table outside of the YMCA. I've never done that before. That's not, there's no book that says, first, find a good picnic table. Sit in the hot sun in Florida. Kids will flock to you if you do this. That's not the way they say to build a youth group. But God wanted me to remember that it wasn't my way that was working. It wasn't because back-to-school bashes were so amazing. It wasn't because I was such a cool, bald, old, fat guy. That's not what was bringing kids to church ever. It never was. It was always him, and he had to remind me that I could just still follow what he's doing. You know what? I've been a pastor for over 10 years now, and right now, like this moment in my life, I am more dependent on what God wants me to do than probably any time in the last at least five years. Because maybe I'd learned to coast. I'd learned to do it my way, and my way was working, and so I stopped leaning on him. Let me tell you something. God sometimes will make you uncomfortable, because he needs to remind you that it's not about human traditions. It's not about the way that we've always done it. It's not about what we're comfortable with. And so I want to remind you, over the next few months, over the next few years, as God changes things and does things in our church, and things that you used to love maybe don't happen anymore at our church. Maybe we don't meet on the same night. Or maybe we don't have the same exact activities. Or maybe we do Sunday school a little bit differently. Or maybe the material's just a little bit different. I want to encourage you to remember It's not about man's traditions. It's not about staying comfortable. It's not about coming and being a part of some club. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of clubs around Sarasota, around Osprey, around Venice. There's a ton of clubs that you can go and join. This is not one of them. We are endeavoring to reach people for the cause of Christ. And if we're really going to do that, we've got to follow his lead. Let me tell you something. I I can't guarantee it. I'm not, you know, I'm not predicting the future. I'm not a psychic here, but I'm going to tell you, everywhere else I've been, we had to get a little uncomfortable before he would start blessing. And I have a feeling that the same thing will be true here. And so as that uncomfortability comes and you start to say, man, this is not the way it used to be. I don't know if I like this. I want to encourage you to remember that Christ is in the driver's seat and let's let him be in control. All right, so it's not about men's traditions. That's another way that they would have you (coughs) captive. It's not about focusing on worldly things or the things of earth. So he, he goes on and he talks about men's traditions and he goes even further. He says, listen, it's not about anything we can see or touch or feel. This is not what, real, not what Christ came to do. It's not to you know, make you comfortable in a classroom or to make you feel good because you came to a building. Christ has more in store than just what we've already been doing. He has more for us. And so it's, it's not about that. He goes on further. The last thing Don't let anybody hold you captive by requiring that you be good enough. Let's look at verse number 13. Verse number 13. Here's what Paul says in verse 13. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Listen to this. It says, 
you worked really hard and fixed yourself and now you're a good person. Right? Everybody see that? That's in your Bible too? Wrong. That's not what it says. It says, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Hear what he says. He says, You were dead in your sins. And it wasn't some process of you becoming a better person. It wasn't you following some set of rules. It wasn't you giving enough to the church. It was only because Jesus Christ made you alive with Him. We are conformed to His death. We died to sin. We died to self. But we're also conformed to His resurrection. He's made us alive. So let me tell you something. If somebody says, well, you're not good enough, you can confidently say back, neither are you. Now, I, I, depending on how big they are or who it is, I wouldn't suggest the pointing of the finger and also maybe say it in a nicer voice or you know, a nicer wording, but that's the reality. If I ever say to somebody, you're not good enough, remind me, neither are you. Because every single one of us fall way short of the standard of Jesus Christ. And that's why he came to die on the cross for our sins. Let's go on further. So first, religion would have you captive. Number two, I want you to see this, that Christ has all the power. So religion would have you captive and would have you follow rules and would have you do things to try to earn your salvation. But Christ wants you to be reminded that it's all up to him. He's got all the power. He holds all the cards. He's in complete control. And we see that in verse number 9. We see that Christ, uh, in Christ, all the fullness of deity, of God, or in other words, is, is, is in Him in bodily form. Or in other words, everything about God was contained within Jesus Christ. Now, the reason Paul says this is he needs to remind you just how powerful Christ was. Some people think, well, Christ was just this you know, pacifist, weak, you know, mealy-mouthed you know, religious leader who could not control anything or could not support himself or could not save himself. In fact, some people you hear in other religions will, will mock that Jesus, if he was powerful, would have taken himself off the cross. But him staying on the cross was the most powerful thing that anybody or any being or anything has ever done in the history of, in the, history of the world. Him staying on the cross. Because here's what it's telling us. He had the ability to make the cross no longer exist. He had the ability to do anything He wanted to do. He could have easily removed Himself from that cross. But even more so, He could have stricken dead everybody that desired to do Him harm that day. You say, well, it was Peter's fault. Peter betrayed Him. Peter was a part of God's plan. You say, it was Judas's fault. Judas betrayed Him. Judas was a part of God's plan. And in, I think there's a neat parallel. If you look at those two, one committed suicide and went to hell. Not because he committed suicide, but because he never turned to Christ. The other one did just as bad and turned to Christ and God used him for the rest of his life to reach people and bring them to Christ. So here's what I want you to see. Peter and Judas were both wicked. They could have looked at each other and said, you're not good enough. And the other one could have replied, you're not good enough either. But Jesus came and died on the cross for their sins. This God who had all the power to remove himself from the cross, to remove the situation, instead chose to choose love and to die for your sins. In Him, all the fullness of God in bodily form. Not only that, in Him, we are made complete. Think about that. So many people go through our world today and are broken and needy and have a void 
that they try to fill with substances, that they try to fill with uh, all types of addictions, that they try to fill with all kinds of human things to try to fill this void that's in their life. And right here we're told in Scripture that Christ completes us. Let me tell you something, when you've accepted Christ and He's changed your life, there is a new peace and satisfaction that you've never understood before until the moment that He came and changed you. Because we are made complete in Jesus Christ. There's no list of uh, rules, there's no list of things that we are required to follow. We serve Him because he lo we love Him. Because He already did everything in us. He's made us complete. Not only that, he goes on further. The other thing we need to know is that Christ is in charge. Verse 10b, I think this is really funny, uh, the way that Paul says it. Verse 10b, he goes on, he says, oh, I flipped too far. <clears throat> Last part of verse 10, he says, and he is the head over all the rule and authority. So, so I, I think you have to see this whole, whole kind of section together. And he says, listen, he is God in bodily form. He is in control. Everybody has to follow him. And he says, listen, everybody in authority has to answer to him. There's nothing on earth, whether it's power or authority or dominions or things that you face, that is outside of his control. He is in charge. You say, well, why is that so important? This is why that's so important. If I told you, uh, let, let's use a real life example. Let's say I said, I am forgiving everybody's credit card debt in the room. All of you are going home and ripping up those credit card debts, right? No. Did I have the power to do that? Did I have the authority to do that? Now, if I said, listen, I am the CEO of Citibank and every Citibank credit card has been forgiven. That's a different story, right? It takes a little bit different meaning or fill in the blank. It doesn't have to be Citibank. Whatever your bank is, it's a little heavier, right? But here's what the Bible says. Here's what Paul was doing. He says, listen, God's in charge. He does have the power. He is God. Jesus is God in bodily form. And then here's what he says. This is why this is so impactful. Number three is this. Christ has set you free. Let's read verse 11 through 14 together. The Bible says this in verse number 11. <clears throat> he says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Listen to this. And the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here, verse 12 is where it picks up. Having been buried with him in baptism, uh, at baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out our certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he is taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Listen, here's what he says. God is in control. As we look here and, and, and see that Christ has made you free, the first thing I want you to realize is that he has removed the body of flesh. So today is Big Church Sunday, so I'm not going to spend a long time talking about the circumcision of Christ or the, the picture given there. But we all understand what he's saying here, that the old was removed. You have been changed. You have been transformed by Christ. Now, in Bible times, there was a surgery required to make this happen. This is really hard on Big Church Sunday, let me tell you. I should have thought through this word. But anyway, no, I didn't. But now, no surgery is required. 
No physical change must happen. Instead, Jesus Christ on the cross, when He died for our sins, for the rest of the world, for everybody who's ever been born and ever died, He changed and transformed who we were. He has made us clean. Now, I think the important thing for you to understand is that circumcision was a picture of clean versus unclean. Simple as that. The same way there was clean food and unclean food, uh, there was clean animals and unclean animals, there was a clean man and an unclean man, and the only difference was circumcision. And here's what he's saying. You were unclean before, and you have been made clean. And here's how he said he did it. By removing that body of flesh. Here's what that means. He took who you were, and that person is gone. If you've become a believer in Christ, if you've been saved, you are not sort of new. You are not kind of changed. You are not a little bit transformed. The Bible says that you are completely new. You are a new creature. He changed you from what you were to something completely different. And so now, you've been changed. You've been, uh, you've been the, the body of flesh has been removed. The flesh or the old man died with Christ on the cross. This is having been buried with Him. And the new you was raised at the re- by Christ at the resurrection by the work of God. So, so some of you that maybe think, well, why is baptism so important? Do you see how that plays out here? We conform to His death when we go under the water. And when we're raised again, we are conformed to His resurrection. It doesn't change you spiritually, but it's a physical sign of what's happened in your life. Second thing here, so we, He removed the body of death. Second thing is that when you were dead, He made you alive. When you were dead, he made you alive. Some Bibles say it this way, you hath he quickened. Or in other words, breathed life into. Where you were never alive before, you are now alive. And so, so this, this picture takes on a whole other meaning when he says that you are made a new creature. What he's saying is that from the day of your birth until the day of your salvation, you had never experienced real life. You were still in a dormant stage, spiritually waiting to be revived and renewed and made alive. And when Christ came in, He breathed life into your spirit. Here's what He says. When you were dead, He made you alive. It says you were dead in your sin and your unchanged flesh. But instead, what Christ did is that through His death, He gave forgiveness and life. So your unchanged flesh was changed. Your sinful nature was forgiven. And the third thing here is this, and this is where justification really is given us in a very clear sense. Here's what He says. Uh, number C, he says, he canceled our debt and declared that we are free. Verse 14, I want to read that one more time with you. Verse 14, the Bible says this. <clears throat> says, he took, having canceled out the certificate of death con- consisting of decrees against us. I want you to catch what he's saying here. He took the certificate of debt consisting of decrees. Here's what he's saying. This was not just, hey, this is a bad guy, you know, some general statement. This was detailed. There was a detailed certificate of debt containing every sin you ever committed. Satan was keeping a list that's saying, oh, yep, John did this. Let me write this down. This is what he did on this date at this time. And here's what he was thinking. Let me write this down here. This is the sin that, that John did on this other date. And, and he's just, he's got, I've got a long list. And let me tell you something. Even my sin probably took boxes and boxes and boxes of paper for him to record everything that I'd done. But when Jesus died on the cross, here's what he said. He took that certificate of debt that was specific and was hostile and was against us and he canceled the certificate of debt. 
He canceled what was against us. He took what we were guilty of. He took what we were in debt of, and He canceled every bit of it. Let me tell you something. It wasn't by our effort. It wasn't because of our nature. It wasn't because of how good we were. It was only because of Christ's work on the cross. Simple as that. So I want to jump ahead here. Uh, you don't, I don't think you have any more blanks. I don't think I'm going to leave anybody hanging. If anybody else is OCD like me, I, 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 you can read the rest of these passages as we go on. I tried not to leave any blanks at the bottom here because I figured we would run out of time on this point. Study them later. But I want to jump to our question. I'm going to jump back up to where we were. Here was our question. Do I have to meet some human standard? Do I have to meet... Uh, I don't know who's back. Is it Anthony back there? Skip forward for me a couple, Anthony. Oh, we got nobody. Okay. Who's it? <laughs> you, okay. <laughs> here's, here's what we got. You got it, Dom? You good? Sorry, he's, he's shorter than Anthony. That's why I didn't see anybody. All right, so the question, let me repeat what our question was today. I didn't put it on the paper. I want to read the whole thing. Sorry, I apologize. See, so guys, we, uh, we need hard workers, and we need a pastor that writes everything on the paper. That would be helpful, too. Here's the question. It's coming. I promise it is. I do know it, but I want to know. There, specifically. Here it is. Oh, we skipped it. Now we're at the table. Let's go back left from the table. <laughs> One more back. Aren't you glad we don't have to be perfect? This is a perfect sermon. This is a good illustration. We don't have to be perfect. Everything doesn't have to be right. Here we go. Oh, we're, we're far. Review. This is for somebody. You needed to see these again. <laughs> You've been made a lie. He canceled our debt. So our question was this. Our question was, do I have to meet some standard? Is there some human list? Is there some human checklist that I have to check those boxes to be saved? And the answer is simple. No. Everything needed, we're back to the table. Just leave it there, we're good, just leave it there. Everything needed for salvation, everything needed to transform us, everything needed to forgive our debt and to cancel our sin and to cancel the problems that we face, everything that was needed, is it going to pop up? Answer? There it is. Everything that was needed for eternal life and a relationship with God was done by Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's, let's, let's get this refocused right here. Jesus did everything that needed to be done for you to be forgiven. And all that you've got to do is accept that forgiveness. We're going to jump right into the Lord's Supper today. And I think that there's no better way that we could illustrate this. There's no better way that we could commemorate this. Uh, as our deacons come forward, we're going to start to prepare to hand out the elements. But as we end here, the last point that I want you to look at, I'm going to rehash, is number two under C at the very bottom says that He removed our debt. It has been canceled. It has been moved out of the way. And it was nailed to the cross. So earlier I told you that baptism was a picture of Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection. That's one of uh, the, the, the things that we were called as a church to continue to do. Something that we were to do to commemorate what Christ did. Once again, baptism doesn't save you. Communion is another one of these. The Lord's Supper does not save you. It does not change you. It does not make you different than who you already are when you start taking the Lord's Supper. But what the Lord's Supper does is it is a keen reminder of that last thing, that our sin was nailed to the cross. And let me tell you something, for our sin to be nailed to the cross, it had to be accompanied 
by Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, this was just before that he said, I want you to do something in, in remember, uh, remembrance of me. And that's what we're going to celebrate this morning. That's what we're going to do this morning. And so as we take communion, I want you to be reminded that this is not just a wafer. You know, uh, my kids say it this way, I want to eat that good bread, which good apparently is a loose term. I, 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 unflavored, unleavened bread is Lily's favorite food. I, I don't know why that is, but she would make it in Israel, I guess. That's what we learned. But it's not about just having some wafer and having a grape juice. This is not just snack time at the end of the service. This is not just something we do to check a box that says, all right, our church, we did this. Now we're a good church. We did what we're supposed to do. In fact, a lot of time and energy goes into thinking about how often should we do this? In what way should we celebrate this? My whole sermon today was shaped by the fact that I knew that today we would be taking the Lord's Supper and that what we are doing should be a remembrance of what Christ already did. This bread and this cup is a picture of Christ's body and blood on the cross. What was given so that we could be saved. And so we're going to turn over just for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm just going to read a passage and we're going to, we're going to take the Lord's Supper today. I think that as we, we have reflect on the sermon this morning, as we reflect on what Christ has already uh, taught to our hearts today, that He was everything we needed for salvation. There couldn't be a better time for us to take the Lord's Supper and remember that His body and His blood had to be given for our salvation. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to read just a couple verses here, starting in verse number 24. The Bible says this, And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. In verse number 26, here's what he says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That word proclaim is what I want us to think about just for a moment this morning. Proclaim here, what he's saying is that we are declaring that we are, um, uh, we are, we are on the same side with Christ. That we are, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, it's slipping my mind. We are relating to Christ, that we are um, conforming ourselves to Christ, that we are saying we stand with Christ in His death, burial, and in His resurrection. Throughout Scripture, you see that played out, that in His death, we must conform to Him, so that in His resurrection, we can also be conformed to Him. So today, uh, as the deacons are, uh, are going to spend some time passing out the bread, um, I want you to be considering this, that we are, through this, proclaiming that I am accepting Christ. I am a follower of Christ. I know that this is what makes me saved. Not my actions, not what I'm doing, not this bread that's in my hand, but that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And so as we do that, the Bible says that we should take a moment and make sure that we're not eating unworthy. And, and I want to preface that by saying this. We celebrate close communion. And I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but here's what that means. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be a Baptist. You don't have to follow everything that we believe. Here's the requirement. You have to have accepted Christ as your Savior and follow Him. That's it. If you're a believer, we invite you to take communion with us today. But if you're not a believer, this is the reflection you're called to. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you've never become a believer, today's a day to consider that. Don't take the cup, don't take the bread just because everybody else is doing it. This is us outwardly saying, the same way as baptism, I relate and am conforming 
to Jesus Christ and His death. Wayne, before we pass out the bread, would you pray for us? This do in remembrance of me. <clears throat> Verse number 25 says this, In the same way he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This, do this as often as you, do, as you drink it in remembrance of me. Wayne, uh, Don, I was going to give you a, we're going to double up today. He'll do it. Don, will you pray for as we hand out the cup? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege and this honor to be able to participate in something so powerful as this remembrance of you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities you give us each and every day. We ask, Lord, that as we partake of this cup, that we use it and really understand its meaning. We've given it all back to you.
Well, I know it's a little later than usual, and I know I'm standing between you and lunch, but I want to leave you with this thought as we close today. <clears throat> if, you, if you sat here today and said, man, this justification stuff, this, uh, the body of Christ, all of this is just so foreign to me, I don't understand it, I invite you, I'm going to stay and, and hang around, catch me and let's talk about it. Let me answer some questions for you, uh, I'd love to do that, but for those of you that are believers, as we go through this week, let this be a reminder, listen, our service this morning was a reminder that we don't have to be perfect. Things don't have to go just the right way. And in fact, as we carry out through our lives, Satan wants to use your desire for perfection against the testimony that you can have for Christ. And so as things don't go your way this week, and as things get difficult this week, and as you face adversity and trials and tribulations and struggles, remember that you are proclaiming the death of Christ through your life and also proclaiming His resurrection in the change that's been made in you. You are dismissed. Good job, fellas. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.